I can look at a person and say, that person's Russian because of distinct facial features that they have had marrying within each group. And so that is the explanation that God gives, unlike evolution that has a foolish, wicked way of looking at man, God gives a reason why we have all the races. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. In our study of the Revelation, we move into chapter 17 today in a message entitled, Religious Babylon. The city of Jerusalem is the most mentioned city in the Bible. Second to that, however, is Babylon. And it's this city that we'll be looking at over the next several days, both its Old Testament foundation and its New Testament counterpart. So today, much of our study will be spent in Genesis chapters 9 and 10. Today is a foundational sermon. We're going to study the place called Babylon, its significance, its typology, and it will lay the foundation for the next couple of months as we work through chapters 17 and 18. So to help us this morning, hold your finger here and turn to the book of Genesis chapter 10. You need to go there, Genesis chapter 10. Our English Bibles take the first five books of the Bible and we title them from the Greek terms that are found in the Greek Old Testament called the Septuagint. Of course, the Jews, they read Hebrew. And so the five titles of the first five books in their Bible are different from ours. Same Bible, same books, different titles. They don't call it genosius in Greek, which means beginnings. They call it parashit. And they take the first five titles from the first five books from the first verses in each of those five books. So the very first word in the Bible is Bereshit. It means in the beginning. And critical to understanding the whole of the Scripture is to understand Genesis and Acts. Genesis gives us in kernel form all of the great doctrines in the Word of God. God in kernel form reveals all of his plans for mankind. And so if you can understand the book of Genesis, it will open up the whole of Scripture to you. Someone called on the Bible line from Maine the other day, and they said, well, we're trying to study the Word of God as a family, and what books should we learn? I said, you should learn Genesis, you should learn Acts, and you should learn Romans. If you can get those three books under your belt with your family, and they're all online at searchthescriptures.org, that will really open the Word of God to you. Now, it's interesting, in Genesis chapter 10, you have the table of the nations. And there's a writing style that you see often employed, not just by Moses, but other writers in the Old Testament, where they'll describe an event, and then they'll go back and they'll tell you how that event came to take place. And so, for instance, in Genesis 10, you have all these languages, all these nations of the world. And if you know anything about Genesis chapter 10, it is a critical chapter in the Bible. But when you come to Genesis 11, then he's going to explain to you how the events of Genesis 10 took place. Now, if you remember in chapter 9 in verse 1, Noah comes off the ark and God commands him and his family, be fruitful and multiply. And while I'm mentioning that, let me just say, I know global warming is a huge issue in our day. And if you were not here last week, in the message before that, we discussed it in detail. 
But God promises that there's not going to be some global meltdown on the planet. We're not going to be overrun by water. You're not going to drown in your backyard with ocean lakes. I promise you that will not happen. You say, on what authority? On the authority of the Word of God. God said in Genesis 8:22, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, in cold and heat, in summer and winter, in day and night shall not cease. As long as man is here on planet earth, until Jesus comes back and ultimately creates a new heaven and a new earth, the normal cycles of seed time and harvest will take place, period. And in spite of the doomsayers, And in spite of the indoctrination that is going on with our young children and the government school system across America, most parents don't have any idea what their kids are being taught. There is a system of doctrine that is undermining the authority of God's Word. God is the creator to get people to worship Mother Nature instead of Father God. But God is clear, summer and winter, day and night will continue, period. We're not going to lose that. Now, with that said, it doesn't dismiss us of being responsible stewards of the creation. But that should not be your focus as a believer. Your focus should be on preaching the gospel. Now, in chapter 9, the decree that came from God to Noah was to be fruitful and multiply. And when you come into chapter 10, you discover that the great-grandson of Noah, the world's first tyrant, is introduced, and his name, of course, is Nimrod. And I hope you have Genesis 10 there open in front of you. We refer to it as the table of the nations. And I suppose that if I had one chapter in all the Bible, if I were uh, on some desert island, I would not choose Genesis chapter 10. But with that said, it is one of the most important chapters in the Bible, and I keep coming back to Genesis 10 for over three decades of preaching the Word of God. It's a critical chapter. Noah comes off the ark with his three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. There are three wives, eight persons in all. And of course, uh, they start having children, and the world begins to populate. We're told in Genesis chapter 10 and verse 8, notice, now Cush became the father of Nimrod. Having listed Cush's sons, God now introduces us through Moses to this shadowy man by the name of Nimrod. And of course, the word Nimrod literally means to rebel. Look again at verse 8. Now Cush became the father of Nimrod. He became a mighty one on the earth. That is to say, he he became a hero. He became a celebrity of sorts. Verse 9, he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. Dropped right in the middle of this chapter is this rebel of a man by the name of Nimrod who who builds this place called Babel, also called Babylon in some of your English Bibles, depending how they render the Hebrew. And this man, Nimrod, becomes the founder of the very first tyrannical one-world government that is glued together through a one-world religion. Now, understand, God, by typology, all the way through Genesis, pictures events that are going to take place in the future. And so, for instance, you remember Abraham up there on top of Mount Moriah, and he has his uniquely begotten son, his monogenes son. There's only two people in all the Bible who are called the only begotten, and that is 
Abraham's son Isaac and the Lord Jesus. Now, they're totally only begotten monogamy, uniquely different in incredibly different ways. But Isaac is a miracle baby. When you are 90 years old as a woman and your husband's 100, it is physically impossible even in Abraham's age span to have a baby. Their bodies were as good as dead. But God gave a miracle baby, and this baby Isaac is a type, a picture of the Lord Jesus. Well, just as Abraham takes his uniquely begotten son and he attempts to offer him in obedience to God up there on top of Mount Moriah, and he is a type, the New Testament says, a picture of the Lord Jesus, which is why Jesus could say, Abraham saw my day and believed. He understood its significance and what it represented. Even so, this man Nimrod This first world king with a world empire is a type, he's an illustration of this coming place called Mystery Babylon. And so it's not by accident that the names are identical. Now, there are four centers to this kingdom, verse 10. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel in Erech, and Akkad, and Canaan in the land of Shinar. Now, the word Babel, again translated in some of your English texts in the NIV, HCSB, NCV, as Babylon, it's the shortened form of the word Babylon, Babel. In fact, in the Greek translation of the Bible, this word that appears over 200 times in every single instance is translated Babylon, the same word that's used in the New Testament and the two chapters that we're studying here in the Revelation. Now, God reveals in Genesis 11 that this root event that dispersed all the nations started with the building of a tower called the Tower of Babel. And this project took place under this man, Nimrod. And so this is the first, quote-unquote, United Nations organization in the world. And just as there was this great world leader who pictures a rebellious spirit that is able to grab the peoples of the world under a commitment to sin against God, there's coming another world leader. He is called Antichrist, and he likewise in the capital of his rule called Babylon, and we'll identify that city for you before we're done with uh, these two chapters, so you need to come back. He likewise is going to have a one-world government and a one-world religion. Now, look at 11 and verse 1. We're told, now the whole earth used the same language and the same worlds. Moses begins by simply telling us there was a time when there was one language and one vocabulary. No dictionaries needed. No dialects. My Hebrew Bible, as I read it this week, it said they had one lip and one set of words. Very illustrative of what is going on here. One vocabulary, one world, and you would think that through this one word, one lip kind of language, that the peoples of the world could come together for good, but they don't. They come together for evil. Now, how different is the world today? There are 6,500-some languages across the planet. Added to that a number of dialects and small nuances within those 6,500 languages. And sometimes as Christians, we think, well, you know, if there was just like one language, it would make it so easy to go and to preach the gospel. And we could accomplish so much more for the cause of the Lord. Actually, God knows that it's a blessing 
that there are a multiplicity of languages across the world because man, when he unites, he typically unites under the banner not of good but of evil. And because they were sinful, rebellious, proud, and wicked people, they come together under one lip and they rebel against God Almighty. It says in verse 2, it came about as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. Now remember, after the flood, God said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. But people don't want to fill the earth. They want to come together. They want to live in one place. And they're clustering in this place called the land of Shinar. If you were with me in my study of the prophet Daniel, that phrase is used in Daniel 1 and verse 2. Daniel is carried away to the land of Shinar. It was Babylon. It was a place where Nebuchadnezzar ruled. And of course, Nebuchadnezzar, in many ways, is a picture, once again, of what Nimrod was like, of having this civilization that tries to unite the people together under a single religious cause. And so these people say, we're not going to obey God. We're not going to spread out across the planet as he commanded. We're going to congregate in this one place. Now, we just noted from Genesis chapter 10 that Nimrod is called a mighty hunter. It's not used, as you read the chapter, in other Scripture in the same way that we describe someone who's a mighty hunter. And by the way, God's not against hunting. It's okay to kill and to eat. You say, I'm against hunting. Well, did you have a good steak? Someone hunted that cow. They slit his throat, whatever they did. God's not against hunting. We don't worship the creatures. Now, we're not cruel to them. A wicked man is cruel to his beast. But God gave us food to eat. But when the Scripture describes Nimrod as a mighty hunter, he is a hunter of men. He is a Hitler of sorts. He's a Stalin of sorts. And he uses his hunting, his violence against men to consolidate people here in this Euphrates Valley. We're told in verse 3, they said to one another, come let us. Circle that word, let us, all right, in your Bible, verse 3. Come let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they use brick for stone, and they use tar for mortar. They said, come let us, circle that second let us, come let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven. And let us, circle it again, let us make for ourselves a name, otherwise we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. The defiance, the rebellion of these people is summarized in these two little English words in our text, let us. Let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they use brick for stone, and they use tar for mortar. Now, I think it's fitting that God would have Moses, under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit, record the materials that they used. Because if you remember, a brick is nothing more than hardened clay. And it is a picture of a coming kingdom. Do you remember as we studied Daniel, bring up the whole chart, if you will, there is this statue that Nebuchadnezzar has his dream of, and he's all bent out of shape. No one in the kingdom can understand what it means. 
And of course, Daniel steps up to the place, and by the Spirit of God, he says, well, the, the golden head stands for Babylon, that's you, king. And then the, uh, the breastplate, that stands for a people known as Medo-Persia, and, and then he describes the skirt that pictures Greece, and then Rome that has two legs to the empire, and then finally at the bottom are these feet that speak of a future empire in Daniel's vision that they were all future, of course, other than Nebuchadnezzar's head, but one that he describes will take place at the end of time. And if you remember, the feet are partly made out of clay. And that is in deference to God's mighty stone, the rock, as it's described in Daniel, that is a picture of the Messiah that will destroy this ten-toed kingdom. We're going to study this ten-toed kingdom here in chapters 17 and 18. There's going to be a revived Roman Empire where ten nations are going to come together. And so God will ultimately destroy. But here are these people, and they build out of hardened clay this tower, and it's an appropriate substance because it not only pictures what the end of time will be like, but it really is a picture of just the fallenness of humanity. Clay and slime mixed together to build this vile tile of Babel. Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they use brick for stone, and they use tar for mortar. They said, come, let us build for ourselves, notice, a city, a tower, and let us make for ourselves a name. You should circle those, a city, a tower, and a name. There's a three-stage plan to this tower. There's a city, there's a tower, and there's a name. There's a social goal, let us build a city. God commanded them to spread out across the earth. No, we want to congregate in this one place. They want to live in close proximity to one another. Second, let us build a tower, and I'll show you in a moment, that's not a social goal, that's a religious goal. This is a religious tower. And third, God records, they say, let us build a name for ourselves. That's an ego-driven goal of sorts. So there's a social, there's a spiritual, there's a psychological goal that is unfolding for us, and this is not for the glory of God, but for the glory of men. The same kind of attitude that another Babylon led by Nebuchadnezzar would express. Nebuchadnezzar said, is this not Babylon the great, which I myself was built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? Yes, it is. Well, there's a coming Babylon led similarly to Nimrod by a coming world leader who will also build a city for his own glory and honor in which to rule the whole world. Now, sometimes these people are painted as ignorant. Oh, they have this tower, and they think somehow if they just build it high enough, and if they weren't hindered by God, and if he didn't start the construction, that somehow they thought they could build it all the way to the throne room of God. And these liberal theologians who love to attack the Bible and say that it's rooted in myth and fairy tales make such statements. Actually, if you look on the New American Standard, you see those two words, will reach? They are italicized. What does that tell you? It tells you they are not a part of the original. Unlike in modern English, 
where we add italics in order for emphasis. Since the 15th century, in our English Bibles, we add italics to supply words that are not in the original text. And sometimes when you come from an original language to a receptor language, it doesn't make sense and it doesn't make good grammatical sense unless you add some words to fill them in. Sometimes the words are directly implied in Scripture. Sometimes they are necessary to make a complete sentence. So the words will reach are not there. The Hebrew text reads, whose top into heaven. In other words, the top of this tower was dedicated to the universe. Why? Because they are worshiping the heavens. The God of creation has been denied. And Nimrod, this mighty hunter of men, has got the people to come together in this religious cause to worship the heavens. Now, this is important. It's interesting. If you go even to modern-day Iran, you discover in Iraq, they have covered in both countries these ancient statues of Nimrod because he was a a mighty hero in their eyes. They have even uncovered little ziggurats. You've seen them, these towers with a circle. And at the top of the tower is the zodiac. The zodiac, of course, was um, an expression of worshiping the heavens. They divided it into 12 parts. Some people read the horoscope, which is an evil thing to do. You should never do it if you name the name of Christ. That's astrology. God speaks heavily against it in the Word of God. But here are these people, and they create this tower that's dedicated to the heavens. Why? Because they are worshiping the heavens. They are worshiping a false god in the place of the one true God. Now, notice how God puts them in place when you drop down here to verse 5. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. God, through Moses, kind of mocks the tower by saying that God had to come down to see as as if he were unaware what this tower looked like. This tower could be seen because God, of course, is omnipresent and omniscient. But he wants to emphasize the hilarious nature of their project as they build this tower dedicated to the heavens. Now, notice the conversation that ensues within the Holy Trinity. The Lord said, behold, they are one people, and they have the same language. And this is what they began to do. And now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Mankind had gotten basically too big for his britches. And God says that they've not scattered as I've commanded them to do. They're not worshiping me. They're worshiping the creation rather than the creator God. And now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. They're all agreed. They're all within one accord. And there's nothing to check their wicked, evil behavior. And so God is going to step in. Look at verse 7. It begins, come let us, not let me, but let us, because there is one God who exists in three co-equal, co-eternal persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. In the opening verse, Barashit bara Elohim, in the beginning created God, plural, singular verb, 
plural noun. Why? Because while grammatically it makes no sense, even in Hebrew, it makes perfect sense because of who God is. He is one God who exists in three persons. Let us make man in our image. Now, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. Here are these proud people. They think they have it all together. They have plotted the heavens. They have made their zodiac, so to speak. And in the process, they have forgotten God. They are praising themselves instead of the God who made them. So one man says to another, hey, hand me a brick. What do you say? What do you say? What are you, being a smart guy? And they can't understand one another. The, The architects can't get together on the same page anymore. This is how chapter 10 unfolded. God confused their languages. So what happened? You hung with people you could understand. You married someone you could understand. Now, the evolutionists say that the races represent the evolutionary process. Nothing could be further from the truth. And of course, Hitler, who is largely influenced through Darwinian evolutionism, said that black people, Jewish people, they were all deficient races in the evolutionary process. God says we are all related. We are all from one blood. We no doubt all looked very similar at one point. But then when the languages came and you intermarry within a particular racial group long enough, then you begin to take on those features and those characteristics. I can look at a person and say, that person's Ukrainian. I can look at a person and say, that person's Russian because of distinct facial features that they have had marrying within each group. And so that is the explanation that God gives, unlike evolution that has a foolish, wicked way of looking at man, God gives a reason why we have all the races. So we're told here in verse 8, so the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the building. As you went to your particular enclave in which you lived and your little family and you found them there, you had had to pull away so that you could function together. Now, whether God physically also helped them is debatable. I think it might be suggested in Genesis 10 as I unfold in that sermon. If you look at the continents today, it looks like they would fit together as a big puzzle. And there appears through one verse in Genesis that God could have broken up the continents at that time and even helped them spread across the earth. In either case, the Bible says the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the earth. Now look at the summary, summary statement in verse 9. Therefore, its name was called Babel. And the word Babel in most languages, English included, just means confusion. The name was called Babel. Because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. Listen, it is not by accident that the final one-world government under a one-world leader is called in the Bible Babylon. Now, the word Babel or Babylon, either one, either the shortened version or the full word, occurs over 200 times in the Old Testament. And it is almost always translated in our English Bible as Babylon. But some of you have in your Bible here not the Tower of Babel, but the Tower of Babylon, depending on the English translation you are using. But it's the same place. Therefore, its name was called Babel. Babel. 
because there the Lord confused the languages of all the earth. It's a put down of the great city Babylon in this future place known as Babylon. To listen again to today's message from Revelation 17 titled Religious Babylon, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program REV47. Search the Scriptures is heard on a large number of radio stations through the prayers and financial support of listeners like you. If you'd like to be a part of STS through supporting this ministry, call 877-787-7478. Thank you. Tomorrow, part two of Religious Babylon. Join us then as we search the Scriptures. <music>